You may be seated. You got your Bible today, will you turn to the uh, letter of James with me again? It's helpful to have your Bible just to give a little background if you need to look around in the context. We're just going to read verses 22 through 27 of chapter 1. It's printed there in your bulletin on page 10. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's, a religi- he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, his, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. Move among us now, Lord, we pray as we hear this in Jesus' good name. Amen. So what I want to try to do, just as we get started today, is I want to try to put ourselves in the headspace of the original readers of this letter. Like the first people that read this letter from James, we're talking maybe around the year 80-50, like 50 years after Christ was born. And I want to think together about something these people, these first readers, had recently learned through a kind of painful experience. Now we know that this letter, we've been talking about this, this letter was written by a pastor in Jerusalem to scattered Jewish followers of Jesus. Remember that they were being persecuted after the first martyr, Stephen, was stoned. That kind of led to an outbreak of persecution, and these believers in Jesus, they're now on the run. And they're, they're scattered within about 20 years. This letter would have been written to them within about 20 years of Jesus' crucifixion. Now, 20 years ago for us is, what, the year 2001. I remember that year very well because it's the year I met Sarah, 9-11, but I think if you think about 2001, it doesn't seem like that long ago. And it was that recently that Jesus was crucified when they're reading this letter. And these are Jewish followers of Jesus. And what that means is these are people who from the time they were born, they've just been soaking in Moses and the prophets. They know their, what we call the Old Testament, so well. That is the macro story. That's the big story. They've been just, they've drunk it with their mother's milk. And they understand that the basic idea of that story is what Adam's sin ruined, Abraham's seed is going to restore. Adam's sin just made a royal mess of our world. And Adam's seed, Adam's offspring, is going to fix that. God's going to bring a new creation to heal his original creation. Well, now these Jewish followers of Jesus, they've they've realized something. They've realized that that seed of Abraham, the, the Bible calls him the Messiah, that Savior who's going to fix the human race, his name is Jesus of Nazareth. The resurrected Jesus, he's that Savior, and they're, they, they, they're, they're so, they've been waiting for this all their lives, and they're so sure that Jesus is the answer that they follow him despite the fact that they're being murderously persecuted by the very powers that killed Jesus. Like the, 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 very, the very political and religious powers that executed Jesus hate these people. They want them dead, And so their life is hard. 
Their life is hard. They're, they're scattered. They're on the run. They, 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 they live under a death threat. But they, they would have resonated as James, you know, we've talked through this first chapter. They would have resonated with James as he tells them, he calls them, you need to know the word of your father. You need to trust the word of truth from your father because that's how Abraham lived. Abraham listened to the word of God. And so when James says, you need to listen to the word and, and plant yourself in the word, they'd be like, yeah, that's like Abraham. That's what we want to, that's, that's who we are. They would have resonated when James says there's an opposite road. If you don't listen to the word of your father, you're going to follow the desires of your heart. The word of your father gives you life. The desires of your heart are going to lead you into sin and death. And they would have been like, yep. (laughs) You know, Adam and Eve, we've seen this in the beginning. You follow your desires away from God into sin, you will die. You listen to the word of God, you will live. They would have resonated with all of that. Their father is Abraham, not Adam. When James says, you have faith in God with no doubting, they're like, that's Abraham. When James said to them, you bring forth the righteousness God requires, you put away that filthiness and rampant wickedness, they would have been, yep, that's the true Israel. That's the true children of Abraham. They would have resonated with all of that. But now I want you to think about, as we turn the corner in verse 22, I want you to think about a very sober lesson in their recent experience. Please listen to this carefully. They've realized something in the last 20 years. They've realized it is possible to be devoutly, fervently, zealously religious and kill the Son of God. I just want to let that kind of sink in. They now know in experience, because they've watched it, it is possible to be zealously, fervently, dare I say, biblically committed as a religious person, a a worshiper of God, and when God sends his son, you crucify him. It is possible to hear and hear and hear and hear and hear and hear the word of God from Sinai, from the prophets, from God in flesh, and deceive yourself that you're listening. It is possible to live a life that is absolutely full of religious ideas and religious language and religious activities and at heart be an enemy of God. It is possible to be a hearer of the word and not a doer. In one of his major sermons, Jesus said these words, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? I know the word of God is cut through my self-deception. Can I ask you guys something today? Can you deceive yourself? Can you be the biggest liar that lies to you? I can. And I know the word of God has cut through my self-deception. And that word of God has broken the dominance of my desires when I do something with it. You know the word of God has gotten to you when your life changes. So I want to hear this text together. I want to hear the call to attention, and then I want to hear the call to action. This, this really matters. And for these readers, it would have been like, they've seen what happens if you don't heed what James says here. I want to begin with, in verses 22 through 24 with the call, or verses 22 through 25 with the call to attention. I love electronics, I really do, but 
The call to attention, be, hearers, be doers of the word, not hearers only. What word? Well, you know, the, James has already told us what word he's talking about. He called it earlier the word of truth. The word of truth by which God brought you forth. So when he says the word here, he's talking about the word of God, the truth of God that creates life. Well, what truth of God creates life? I think he's really talking here about the, the whole revelation of God. Everything God has ever said, we now know it as the Bible, but this whole long you know, set of words that God has spoken through history, all of which center on Jesus. Like everything before Jesus was getting ready for him, every, all the God's words since Jesus have been kind of explaining who he is and what he's done. But there's this whole revelation of God that centers on Jesus, particularly the fact that he died for our sins, he rose again, and he, has, he now reigns at the right hand of the Father, that Jesus. That's the word that creates life. That's the truth that creates life. That's the good news, what we call the gospel. And, and James also in verse 21 called it the implanted word. It's a word that acts like a seed. Now think about the world of seeds for a minute. If you guys know anything about the world of seeds, you know that seeds if there's one thing that characterizes the world of seeds, it's fruit. Seeds go into the ground, they die, and they bear fruit. Seeds grow. I've been telling you about my grass. Well, it's growing, you'll be glad to know. I didn't think these seeds are ever going to grow. Seeds grow, they produce, they do something. They don't just sit there. They, there is activity that happens when seeds are planted. Well, that's how the Word of God is. The truth of God that makes you alive to Him, it is a seed word that bears fruit, but you'll notice in verse 23, the fruitfulness of God's word, the doingness of God's word in our lives depends on whether you're really paying attention, because it might look like you are. There's kind of a really absurd picture here. I don't know if it's a guy or a girl, but you got this person staring into a first century mirror, staring into it. And I, I ask you to imagine what it would be like if you saw someone staring into a mirror for like 30 minutes and they turn away from the mirror finally after intently looking into it and you ask them, so what color shirt are you wearing? And they're like, I have no idea. And the question that would immediately jump to mind if this person cannot describe a single thing about himself or herself after staring intently into the mirror is, dude, what were you looking at all that time? What were you seeing? Now, we know this is absurd because it's actually the exact opposite with mirrors. One of my favorite things in a perverse kind of, I have kind of a sick sense of humor. One of my favorite things is trying to have a conversation with someone when there's a mirror nearby. Because there are all kinds of people that actually can't have a conversation with a mirror nearby. They literally keep looking at themselves in the mirror. There's something like magnetic. It's like when my kids were little and I'd have the, the camera and I had this like, I had this screen on my side where I could see what I'm looking at through the camera. And the kids, once they figured out they were on that screen, kept running around behind the camera to see the screen. And then it's like, where's Andrew? Well, he's behind the camera, you doofus. You know, I can't, you know, you got to be over there for me. He couldn't get it. But he had, they had to see themselves on, on the screen, you know. Had to see themselves. Something magnetic about seeing yourself on a screen. Seeing yourself, I don't know, on Instagram or whatever it is. Seeing yourself, we, we, we're just magnetized by that. You know why we're magnetized? You know why you can't stop looking at yourself? You can't stop looking at yourself in the mirror because that mirror just tells you all kinds of stuff you don't know about yourself any other way. That mirror lets me see, as I just cannot with my own eyes, how I actually am in the world. How I actually look, for better or worse. And crucially, that mirror, that photograph of me, 
it tells me what's wrong with me. It tells me my tie is crooked and my hair is messy and I spilled spaghetti on my shirt. And I actually am getting out of shape. I look like I worked out once. (laughs) It shows me how I really am. And I'm kind of magnetized by that because any of us who have any insecurities whatsoever really want to see like what is not as it ought to be about me. So here's my question, beloved. You look into the word of God. Why don't we see ourselves in this word? A member of my family recently asked me a very pointed question. Did you even hear the sermon you preached on Sunday? Maybe you're looking at somebody else. I do this when I'm getting ready to preach. I'm, just to be honest with you guys, I have times when I'm getting ready to preach, and I'm thinking, man, I hope that person is there. I hope that person's in the front row, and I hope they have a good cry when it's over. Because, man, move on them, Lord. Who am I looking at in the mirror? Some of y'all do this. You sit here Sunday after Sunday, and you're thinking, man, I hope that person's listening. That's why you don't see yourself in the Word. Or maybe it's that you don't recognize yourself in the Word. It is amazing how God can be talking straight at us. You read, you read, you read. You've got a Bible reading plan. You, you, know, you know all the stories. You, you think you know the Bible well. And the amazing thing is you read and read and read and read the Scriptures, and it never somehow hits you in your gut. Oh, that's me. I need to do something with that. I really need to do something with that. Or maybe you're afraid to see. I get afraid to see. I have times I don't want to open my Bible. I don't want to see. Some churchgoers gaze into the Word of God for years and years and years, and they're unfazed. Unfazed. Dallas Willard, in his quite sobering book, The Great Omission, you know, we call it The Great Commission, Make Disciples. He calls it The Great Omission. Listen to what he says. He says, for at least several decades, the churches of the Western world have not made discipleship a condition of being a Christian. One is not required to be or even to intend to be a disciple in order to become a Christian. And one may remain a Christian without any signs of progress toward or in discipleship. Contemporary American churches in particular do not require following Christ in his example, spirit, and teachings as a condition of membership either of entering into or continuing in fellowship of a denomination or local church. Listen to what he's saying. You don't have to be at all like Jesus, and you can stay in the church and stay in the church and stay in the church and stay in the church. He says, so far as the visible Christian institutions of our day are concerned, discipleship clearly is optional, unquote. Sobering stuff. And the contrast in verse 25, the model that we want to follow is one who looks into the word, this perfect law. You know, the Jews loved Torah. It was God's own revelation to them, the law of liberty. It's law that bring, the law of God that brings freedom. And notice the language. Here's the difference. The one walks away and forgets immediately. The other perseveres. You know what this means? You guys are, pro- I hope, right now, I hope, I, I, can't, I don't know, but I hope you guys are having a little bit of an, a, a, a moment here with Jesus. I hope there's something's happening in your soul. I hope you're not sleeping, thinking about, you know, lunch or whatever. I hope you're th- kind of like dialed in a little bit here, to some degree connecting to what I'm saying. But the question is whether you're going to still be connected in your car. Because persevering in the word means I take the word of God with me when I leave church. 
I take that word of God with me into my life. That's persevering in the word. Take it with you into your life, into your business, into your home, into your, you know, your friendships, into your recreations, into your, you know, watching whatever you watch. You know, take it, take it to bed with you. Take the word with you. Let it remain with you. Let the word stay with you and stay with the word. Don't leave it behind in your prayer closet. Don't assign it a, a comfortable shelf in your life. Keep it with you, like you keep your phone, okay? Now, being a good pastor, James realizes you've got to get specific, because that still sounds like it's kind of floating up in the ether a little bit. So what does this mean? And he gives us three things as we turn now to the call to action. So the call to attention, but in verses 26 and 27, there's a call to action, and he basically just says, now, people, here, do this with the word. Do this with the word. As the word is remaining with you and you're remaining with the word throughout your life, do this. Three things. Call to action now. First thing he says is, bridle your tongue. Bridle your tongue. How many know you know what a bridle is? Because I get a little nervous talking to suburbanites. Some of you don't know what a bridle is. Hopefully you know what a bridle is, right? It's that thing on a horse that does this, okay? Bit in the mouth, bridles the tongue. And James says, your tongue's a horse. Get a bridle on it. Get some reins on it. What happens when your father speaks? What happens when God speaks? It gives life, right? From the very beginning, when God speaks, life happens. And so if we're children of God, as the word of God is ruling in our lives and we are living with the word, what's going to start happening is God's word rules in your heart is you're, you're going to start producing life-giving words. When you speak, you're going to speak in ways that give life because that's how, what happens when your father speaks. You know a tree by its words. You know who, what, what's going on in the heart, Jesus said, by what comes out of the mouth. Now, it's interesting. Bridles do two things. Bridles restrain and they direct. And that's important. They do restrain. There is, you know, a quote-unquote negative thing here. You think you're religious. You don't bridle your tongue. You're deceiving your own heart. Your religion is worthless. There are things that Christians do not say. Let me say it again. There are things Christians do not say. There are ways of speaking that cannot continue where Jesus is Lord. One of the things that I have found very, very disturbing, honestly, I will not pretend this has not happened in my own life because it has. I have listened to, I have interacted with Christians and what is streaming out of their mouth, the only word for it is verbal abuse. Words that can only come from a rotten heart. And the word of God restrains our words. Beloved, listen to me. If you're a gossip, if you're a slanderer, I'm not talking about falling into these things and having moments where you realize I have sinned against the Lord. I'm talking about this is something that really characterizes your life. It's what really consistently comes out of your heart. If you are a slanderer, if you are a reviler, if you're a mocker, if you're a ranter, if you're a tweet bomber, if you're an inciter, a baiter, a threatener, a yeller, and you are not actively, observably repenting of that sin, God says your Christianity is worthless. It is worthless. 
That's how serious it is that God wants his word to rule in our hearts. The fruit of the word to come forth in our life. Do you know the beautiful thing about restraint on your tongue? It enables you to hear. When I'm not talking, it's weird, I hear better. L.M. Sacassus has suggested that the story of modernity, the story of the modern world, can actually be read as a story of people finding their voice. There was a time when a lot of people in our world were muzzled, basically. They didn't matter. They were marginalized. They were part of the groups that nobody wanted to hear from. You can make the case that one of the good things that's happened in the modern world is people have found their voice, but I think we've got an opposite problem now. We are now discovering that a cacophony of voices does not a community make, that shouting is not a social program, that everybody talking at once at the top of their lungs is not actually a way to build a society. If we are not swift for Jesus' sake, to hear one another. And together to hear that word before which all voices must be silent. Then our words are just going to end up being wedges that drive us further and further apart. The very things that God made to connect us, words connect, those words become wedges between us if we do not hear one another and do not hear the word of the Lord together because he's the ultimate authority that can tell us whose voice should prevail, who's speaking truth. But, you know, bridles direct, and this is beautiful. The word of God directs us, because it's not just constantly being restrained in what you say. It's not just what we don't say, it's what we do say. One of the things that I love watching, and, you know, we have different personalities. This doesn't come out in the same way in everybody. But one of the things I love watching is people, you know, they gather together and they worship together and they, you know, share life together as Christians, is you begin to see people learning how to speak, how to, you begin to learn the art of conversation. It's really hard. If you, Jesus says love one another. You know, you really, it's hard to love one another without any talk, without any conversation. You know, if, if Jesus puts you, you know, I don't know if you guys would be friends if we were in a church. I, I doubt it. Some of you might be. Most of you wouldn't even know each other if it weren't for Trinity Church. You know, God brings people together in the body of Christ. It's kind of weird how he throws people together. And he tells you you need to love these people like brothers and sisters. And one of the things you have to learn then is you have to learn how to start talking to each other and listening to each other and having real conversations. And it's beautiful to watch that happen. You watch people's lives kind of be pried open in healthy ways. And they talk. And you learn how to bless with your words. You actually learn how to build people up with your words. You know this is possible? I mean, even for Long Islanders, it's possible. Even for New Yorkers, it's possible. You can build people up with your words. You can find non-cheesy ways of actually really building people up. You can give people hope with your words. You can comfort people with your words. You can give wisdom with your words. You can give clarity with your words. You can pull people back from the precipice with your words. But, you know, the Bible says, let us not just love in word or talk. Bridle your tongue. Second thing, though, because James is going to keep going after us, Second thing he says in verse 27 is, visit the distressed. Visit the distressed. If anyone, religion that's pure and undefiled before God and the Father, because he's our Father, it's this. You visit orphans and widows in their distress, in their affliction. Orphans and widows here are kind of stand-ins for all kinds of people. They're, they stand in here for the impoverished, for the sick, the injured, the disabled, the feeble, the exhausted, the hungry, the imprisoned, the oppressed, the marginalized, the abused, 
the stranger, the immigrant, the homeless. Visit the distressed. If you live, beloved, please hear this. If you live with the word of God, you are going to start to feel need. You're going to start to feel need. People are distressed. People are impoverished. They're distressed and impoverished spiritually and psychologically and relationally and socially and materially. You cannot walk with Jesus and not have that soften your heart towards human need. The word of God will stir in you as you walk with God. Go to them. Find out what's going on there. Do what you can, like Jesus. And I love the word visit. Don't throw money at the problem. You go, visit them. Visiting isn't just giving stuff. Visiting is giving yourself. It's personal. It's relational. It's being with someone until you actually know kind of what's even going on with their mental illness or their, you know, economic crisis or the abuse in their past or, you know, the the racism they've experienced or whatever it might be. But you're going to realize something else if you're walking with Jesus. You're going to realize that distress isn't just an individual thing. Distress, there are communities that are distressed. There are classes of people that are distressed. You're going to start to realize that we need not just individual responses to distress. We also need some collective responses to distress. We need some organized responses to distress. We need some cooperative responses to distress because we can't all do it individually. You're going to start to realize we've got to start building together as God's people and sometimes partnering with even those who are not God's people. That's, it's a beautiful thing the way this works in the world. We've got to start building some healthy institutions and maybe strengthening existing institutions that have the resources that I don't have, resources you don't have, not just to provide relief, beloved, of the distress, but to teach and educate and support and encourage people in learning sustainable life ways. Getting out of the patterns of life that are destructive and toxic and, and are sucking them dry. we got to build homes where you can actually bring people in and the, your home is a healing place. Your home is a hospital. Your, home, your table is a place where people can, can, can eat and drink and begin to open up and, and know that they are loved and accepted and begin to just you know, learn fr- from, from you in, in a good way. We've got to start building some businesses that have the financial wherewithal to support the work of the kingdom. We've got to start building some not-for-profit organizations. Our brother Alex is doing this now. And supporting existing not-for-profit organizations that are meeting actual needs. Come to the Walk for Life on Saturday. If you don't come, spend some of your money to help these unwed moms and their babies that would otherwise be aborted. This is a big deal. This is Jesus' people. You sit here soaking in sermons every Sunday, beloved. Amen. But man, what are we doing with it? There's a sense of the people of this world are distressed. We need to build schools. You know it's like burning inside of me. I don't know if I'll see it in my lifetime. I want to see Christian schools on Long Island. We need money. We need people. We need organization. We need to educate for the kingdom. Visit the distressed. You're going to get uncomfortable as Jesus' word works in your heart with how modern society isolates the needy and insulates us from seeing them. There are no poor people in my neighborhood. You know why? Because we build our neighborhoods to make sure there aren't any poor people in our neighborhood. 
We keep the people we don't want to see out. We put them behind walls. We create highways. We can drive to work and never see the people we don't want to see. So you got the bad neighborhoods and the good neighborhoods, and I don't have to see the people in the bad neighborhoods, so I can just go back to my comfortable home after my comfortable job and be comfortable. This is modern society. We've built our spaces to hide the distressed. That's going to make you uncomfortable. Jesus said the poor will always be with you. You know what? They're not with us. They're not with us. They're somewhere else. The question for us as Jesus people is going to be, how can we not only go where they are, how can we bring them where we are? Listen to Isaiah. He's talking to people who are religiously fasting. He says, is not this, God is speaking, is not this the religious fast that I choose? Let's declare a day of fasting. God says, good, here's the day of fasting I choose. To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the straps of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free. And to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked to cover him. And not to hide yourself from your own flesh. That's true religion in the eyes of God. That's how Jesus is. That, beloved, is what Christians should be known for. Not your clever, I'm not talking about you guys, but not our clever tweets and our political pyrotechnics we fire off in our ranting. We should be known for good works because you know what Peter says in this first century context? He says, you want to put to silence the ignorance of fools. There are fools who hate God. There are fools who hate the church. There are fools who hate Christians. You want to know how to shut up the fool? give you a hint it's not social media it's good works what are they going to say when they see your good works and the last thing bridle your tongue visit the distressed and guard your heart guard your heart because the other part of pure and undefiled religion is keep yourself unstained from the world I'm almost done I'm in the world if I'm following Jesus. I'm not in a monastery. I'm not hiding out in my church and in my home and with my close Christian buddies and just kind of, you know, weathering the storm. I'm in the world. I am out there loving on people, neighboring, visiting. But as I'm out there in the world, the word of God in my heart is going to remind me every single day I am not of it. I'm not of the world. I'm actually a walking temple I'm a walking temple. My heart, with its deepest loves and its deepest loyalties, that heart is holy ground. And within those walls of my heart, there is one Lord. And his blazing holiness is the measure of all things. My heart is his temple wherever I am. I am walking holy ground. James will later say in this letter, if you are a friend of the world, you are God's enemy. And I've really struggled with how to tell you you, how to tell us, like, what then is the world? What is the world? Find a simple way to say what the world is, because people have a lot of confusion about this. And finally, this week, God helped me. A, a friend of mine from 20 years ago, Miriam Kamel, she co-authored a commentary on James, and she wrote this. This is so helpful. She says, to be friends with the world, listen carefully here, to be friends with the world means 
to identify with its standards and priorities. That's worldliness. When you identify with the standards of those who do not worship God and the priorities of those who do not worship God. I love everybody God sends across my path without discrimination. I just love them. I neighbor them. I'm in the world. And nothing human is alien to me. I love God's creation. I love what people do with creation. I love culture. I love, I love civilization. I just love, it's an interesting place. The human beings, have, human beings have done amazing things with the world. and All that is all to the good. I enjoy all that as a child of God. But the standards of my life, beloved, the norms of my life, how I decide what is good and what is not, how I decide what is beautiful and what is not, how I decide what is worthwhile and what is not, and the priorities of my life that flow from those standards, what I actually give myself to. Those standards and priorities are set by the living God. They are not set by what is trending. They're set by God himself. Otherwise, I'm a friend of the world. My standards and priorities are set by those who are not friends of God at all, but are in fact his enemies. So this is the life of God's children. Be doers of the word. Bridle your tongue. Visit the distressed. And guard your heart, because God loves you, and you belong to him. I'm going to conclude with this quote from Kevin Van Hoser. Because you know, if we must do more than just hear the word, we surely must not do less than hear the word. We need to hear the word. Listen to what he says, and with this I'll close. Christian imaginations are captive to non-biblical stories that do not lead us to Christ and thus fail to nourish our souls. We need to call these stories out and expose their shortcomings. I started watching a TV show this week, and I was... I confess, sometimes I'm actually shocked by the stories of our culture. We need to call these stories out and expose their shortcomings. We cannot hide behind orthodox theology and pretend that we are invulnerable to the cultural programming that is happening to us 24-7. The church is in competition with the powers and principalities that are trying to capture our imagination and from there our body, heart, and soul. Do you hear the sequence? The principalities and powers of this age are seeking to capture your imagination, get their story in your head, get their vision of the good life in your head, and from there they've got your body, heart, and soul. The gospel, especially the dramatic announcement that God has raised Jesus from the dead, sets the captive imagination free. Everything changes with that. What we might call the evangelical imagination, the gospel imagination, an imagination ruled by the story of the gospel that frees us to see and judge and act in faith in accordance with the way things really are rather than the way secular science or Madison Avenue or I would add Silicon Valley say they are. It's all those other words and all that noise in contemporary culture that disorient and deserve to be called vain imaginings. The evangelical imagination alone opens up the real possibility of living along the grain of reality according to what is really the case in Christ. That's the call of the gospel. Be doers of the word, beloved.
Make it so, our Father. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.